Just a quick note before we get started. Once again, we're recording this podcast remotely where uh, the various people on the podcast are not located in the same place. And there are a few moments where the audio is not perfect because of that. And I wanted to apologize for that and also let you know that we are still trying to raise money to purchase better recording equipment. So if you would like to support our efforts uh, at having better quality sound for you, you can go to frockflix.com and click on support us and find some very easy and cheap ways to donate or buy a t-shirt, other easy and affordable ways to support this podcast and our blog. Hello and welcome to Frockflix, the historical costume movie and TV podcast. I'm your host, Kendra Van Cleef, and I'm here with one half of our original Broadway recording cast, Sarah Lorraine. Yay, and we are here podcast recapping, sort of, Outlander. Uh, We have a special guest on this episode. Brenna Barks. Who is our resident uh, 18th century Scottish history expert. Welcome, Brenna. Thank you. Yay, we're so glad to have you, and uh, listeners will know that we've had Brenna on the podcast once before, and she's done a fabulous review of Outlander during season one on our blog. We'll link to that from the, the blog post. So I said we're sort of doing a recap, and we'll definitely be talking about the last two episodes, including the finale, but you've probably watched them too, so you know that not much new happens in the costume department. So while we'll definitely be talking about the plot um, and things specific to these past two episodes, we thought it might be more interesting to talk about the season and the series in general. So we'll probably be focusing a little bit more big picture um, and hopefully, of course, getting into some of the nuts and bolts of what's just happened in the last two episodes. So that is the plan. Okay. So I thought I would get things uh, started by asking Brenna how she thought they did Um, in terms of getting the history of the Jacobite Rising correct, um, and, uh, you know, sort of link to that is sort of like what they chose to include and didn't choose to include. Um, I mean, did they sort of get the major beats right? Did they go, you know, off book massively in any place? Um, And uh, do you feel like they, you know, conveyed the story enough so that viewers could get it? Well, um... Uh, that's a that's a tricky one. Um, I would say that this is kind of a massive oversimplification of everything that led up to Culloden. Um, and is okay. Admittedly, this is because the author has her own story that she's telling, and um, it would probably be an equally long book just to talk about all of the various things that contributed to the Jacobite cause that led up to the um, the Battle of Culloden was really hard for me to just not roll my eyes at was, oh, if we just, you know, poison Bonnie Prince Charlie, that will stop Culloden. It's like, no. Um, Culloden was not about Bonnie Prince Charlie in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, Bonnie Prince Charlie, um, he wasn't quite so wishy-washy as, um, as the character is written. So I guess what it is is that I disagree with um, Diana Gabaldon's characterization of him. Um, at that point, he was um, very angry because they had turned tail and run back to Scotland against his wishes. Um, and so 
Culloden was a battle he didn't want to have happen, and um, what actually happened was that because he didn't, he was upset with his generals, and his generals were upset with him. There was not a great amount of communication on the field. It wasn't this whole "Oh, I have faith in God, and you're my Thomas," and this sort of thing. And um, Culloden would have probably happened anyway because um, the Duke of Cumberland, who after Culloden was um, nicknamed Butcher Cumberland was absolutely determined after they got as far south as Derby that he was going to root out the Jacobite cause. So assassinating Bonnie Prince Charlie would have done nothing. Culloden still would have happened because the point wasn't Bonnie Prince Charlie at that point. The point was the Hanoverians asserting, you are the past, we are the future, this is over and done with. So that part was massively inaccurate. <laughs> okay. Thanks. That that's super helpful to hear about because um, so I mean obviously the whole thing that happened is they marched the the Jacobite army marched south and got relatively close to London and then as was shown on the show they made the decision to turn around and go back because the English weren't rising up the way they had hoped. But I mean if they had marched into London or whatever, I know in the show the point was supposed to be whether or not they could change history, mm -hmm. but they still, there still would have been a giant massacre at some point because the Jacobites were completely outnumbered and the general populace wasn't rising up in their support. Am I right? Uh, this is the problem with the, with the 45. Um, one, it was the last major battle ever fought on British soil. Um, the 1745 was the last big um, you know, battle um, in Britain. There hadn't been one, there hasn't been one since. But it's also the biggest might have been in history, well, in British history, because the reason they turned back was basically um, Bonnie Prince Charlie was at a war conference with his generals, and they were in Derby, and there are a couple of different influences. One of them is really, really funny, so I will share it with you. Um, but there was, basically, the war council was crashed by this spy, in ginormous quotations, who exaggerated the number of British soldiers who were coming to um, intercept them, and I believe it was Wade's army that was coming, and you know how many were stationed in London, and therefore um, the Scottish generals who were more seasoned than Charles, because he was you know 20, uh, they were like, no, we're going to go back home to Scotland, because up until this point, um, any Jacobite rising, if they turned and went back to Scotland, they were safe. No one pursued them past the Scottish border. Um, so they miscalculated, A, on Cumberland not following them all the way home, and B, the quote-unquote spy who knew all of this about the um, English numbers was an English spy. In fact, after um, the 45, he was known to like brag in pubs about the fact that he lied to Bonnie Prince Charlie and turn them back when there really wasn't an army that could have stopped um, the Jacobite forces moving south. So it was actually very possible that they could have taken London because um, in all of this, Charles is a pawn for um, the French king. The French king is new to the throne and he wants to kind of test this um, rivalry with Britain. Um, with the least amount of risk to him and his own. So that's why Charles was so adamant about getting to London, because Louis wasn't going to send any backup until they got to London. And 
the Scottish troops were like, well, you promised us French troops and they're not here, and how do we know they'll even show up when we take London? Uh, so lots of back and forth, and in fact, there were troops ready to, uh, they were in Calais, ready to cross the channel and support Charles. So if he could have taken London, there's a lot to suggest he could have taken the throne. But because of that spy misrepresenting how many um, troops were facing them, they turned back. There's also this very interesting um, aspect of history at the time. There was an outbreak of foot and mouth disease among the cattle in Britain, and Derby was the line at which it reached, and Highlanders were cattlemen. And so it's this whole idea that perhaps the Highlanders didn't want to risk taking the infection back home to their livelihood, but um, Bonnie Prince Charlie and foot and mouth disease just doesn't have the same romantic ring to it. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Well, thanks. That's actually really interesting, despite having studied some Scottish history. That's bits I didn't know, like the idea that they thought they wouldn't be pursued back in Scotland. I never quite understood that because it didn't make sense to me, but that now, now that makes a bit more sense. Sarah, I'm just wondering, um, do you feel like, I guess it's maybe hard to answer this, do you feel like you got enough information to follow the gist of what was going on in terms of the rising? Um, I don't know, is that even a good question? Uh, no, actually, it's a fairly good question. Um, I don't know a whole lot about this particular period, and there were a lot of times where I was like, and what's going on in the background with this battle thing? That's got I knew that Culloden happened. I knew that there was, you know, Ronnie Prince Charlie. There was all of this kind of, you know, vague ideas about what was going on in the actual history and in the in, as far as it came across in the plot. Um, it was very much... Of course, very much incidental to the actual storyline, which is, you know, Claire and Jamie, um, mostly Claire even. But, yeah, there were points where I was just like, wait, wait, okay, so wait, what's going on now? Where are we going? Who are we with? <laughs> you know, so it was it was a little vague. I mean, maybe it was, uh, there, were, there were probably points where I missed, you know, key elements of, of the plot um, in terms of, like, where they were headed, how they were going to get there, who they were fighting at any given time. Um, and I just tuned them out because I'm looking for costume content mostly. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking, like, when am I going to get to the costumes? Um, but, I, you know, I don't think they did a bad job necessarily. They definitely did the Cliff's Notes version of it. It was very topical. Um, even not knowing, not knowing much about this period, I could tell that it was very much skimming the surface. A lot of things were being kind of, you know, they couldn't get into too much detail, I think, without detracting from the story, which is always one of those problems you have when you're doing a, you know, a historical plot, you know, something that centers on a piece of history, but you want to focus on characters <laughs> that have a story that is more important to tell and the, the plot, the history's in the background. So I get it. But. Right. Well, and I mean, obviously this is fiction, but they're trying to do the, the sort of the micro-history take of here's you know, here's one thread, and I mean, I did think it was interesting watching, um, you know, Jamie training up his, you know, the very untrained troops and the sort of sense of bravado of, again, the untrained troops who hadn't gone up against a real army, but it, they definitely made it seem like Bonnie Prince Charlie was the weak link. Well, that and the Argui generals, but mostly that Bonnie Prince Charlie was just like, nah, screw all you, God wants me to be on the throne so it'll all work out. Yeah, and, um, okay, that is an element of just all of the stewards, you know. Um, I was um, re-watching 
history of um, Scotland while I was cleaning this past weekend, and you know, even way back in the Middle Ages with the Stuarts, there is this sort of well, I'm I'm the king, so you have to listen to me, and it's like that's a complete and total denial of the way Scotland has like ever worked. Um, <laughs> they've never really done that whole divine right thing. Um, but I also I just feel like the characterization is based on what he became. Um, and it's like, okay, he had been raised almost more British than the British. Um, and he had been raised since birth to believe that he was the rightful king of Britain and that it was his destiny to take the throne back. And, um, you know, so this was like the core part of what he believed about himself and about his family. And then, um, you know, like so many Stuarts before him, he then went and found out that the Scottish um, lords are a little bit more, de uh, they, they expected to be a little bit more democratic than that. And so um, they were, they had their own ideas, they thought they could challenge him on things, so on and so forth. But um, it afterwards, the disappointment of the rising, because he came so close, uh, he did, you know, basically degenerate into women and syphilis and drinking and eating too much. And I I get that she was probably trying to plant the seeds of this is where he was going, but it's like it was more like he drank and went to whorehouses to numb the pain of everything rather than that was necessarily how he started type of thing. Right. Well, and I do think part of it is wanting to give the viewers a, a tidy reason for why why things didn't work out, and that tidy yeah. reason is Bonnie Prince Charlie, according mm -hmm. to this story. And of course, histories, as we know, always more complex. And even if they were making a twenty-hour documentary, I'm sure they would miss something. So we're not dinging them. We're just because we are dealing with history. It could be that we are both right and we are both wrong because we're dealing with human beings. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and of course, again, with the whole time travel thread, you know, they're trying to see if they can change history, and, and that adds a whole other level of complexity. All right, so my next question is also for Brenna, and it's the big one. What did you think of Bonnie Prince Charlie's wardrobe? Oh, my God. I, I love that suit so much. <laughs> the plaid suit? Yes, um, in fact, I, I have begun referring to it as the biscuit tin suit because um, <laughs> it looks exactly like the 19th century painting of Bonnie Prince Charlie greeting Flora MacDonald. Um, Which is a totally awesome portrait, by the way. <laughs> it is. I'm so grateful someone made that into like a real object. I'm so happy. <laughs> Um, I cannot actually say that it's historically inaccurate, but I can't say that it's historically accurate because the problem with Culloden is that um, because it was such a spectacular failure, you have two things going on. You've got the immediate bitter grapes where, you know, Bonnie Prince Charlie is blaming the Scottish nobles, and the Scottish nobles are, after he actually set, goes into hiding, saying, well, how's that for a damned Italian? Um... <laughs> So, um, you know, it's like, okay, immediately after Culloden, you have some bitter grapes going about, um, but you also have some stereotypes being tossed about. There was a wanted poster issued while he was in hiding um, by the British Army of him in 
like this true suit that basically looks like Harlequin print. Um, and so it's like, okay, I don't know if him wearing tartan was a myth. I don't know if it was true. Because uh, then any later um, accounts, you know, 40 years later when it was okay to talk about it, or like 60 years later when it was okay to talk about it again, it's all coded in this like nostalgia and, you know, reverence. And there's this cult of Bonnie Prince Charlie. It's like practically every Highland family has a bit of tartan that he supposedly wore or a, a lock of hair. And um, the the keeper of the National Museum, uh, the keeper of Scottish history, which is basically the curator at the National Museum of Scotland, um, has said if every single one of those locks of hair and bits of tartan was, um, you know, real, he would have been bald and naked. Which is like no wonder Flora Macdonald had to dress him in his in her maid's <laughs> you know outfit. <laughs> So it's like, there's like so much myth surrounding Bonnie Prince Charlie. I cannot say that that is an inaccurate portrayal of what he would have worn. I just know I'm very happy. I, I want that suit so mad. <laughs> well, so then a follow-up question, and I think someone mentioned this on our blog that, because we posted the, the portrait that it's based on, but is that a, then a later portrait? Um, or 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 maybe it's the one that's like was misattributed. Sarah's got something on this. Yes. Um, no, I think that the uh, the one that his his costume that he's um, in the show that he's wearing with the gold lace on it, the the tartan with the gold lace, that is actually based on a on a portrait of him extant to that period. Um, the one that Brenna was talking about, the the Bonnie Prince Charlie and Flora Macdonald one, was painted like at some point in the mid nineteenth century. It's a it's a different portrait, um, and he's wearing actually a different kind of plaid in it as well. So you know whatever talk about. I made a comment about plaids like a couple of weeks ago and got my freaking head blown off by people who said that I was completely wrong about it. So I'm not going to make any comments about like clan plaids or anything. All I'm going to say is that. A lot of this was codified in the 19th century, so it's not necessarily historically accurate for the 18th century. But be that as it may, um, his his outfit in the show, the, the one he predominantly wears, was a was an 18th century portrait of him. Um, and even those 18th century portraits, though, um, kind of have to be taken with a grain of salt because, you know, they they might just paint their their hands and their face and then send the um, the rest of it off to someone who's going to paint the clothes and um, so you get some really interesting paintings of tartan because people really don't either know what they're looking at or what's being described to them and so they just kind of make it up um, so you know as I said it's like he might actually have worn that suit we do have the portrait but there are enough accounts by artists of talking about how oh yeah I then just went back to the studio and made something up that 50-50 shot, you know? <laughs> oh, the portrait I was just mentioning um, with the gold braid uh, is painted by William Mossman. Um, and the date on Wikipedia, I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> this is how I do my research. It's uh, 1750, so it probably was painted post, you know, obviously post-Culloden. Uh, it could have been a commemorative type of portrait. but And that was something that became very popular within Jacobite culture because um, Cumberland's... Um, you know, policy was actually very um, effective. It drove the Jacobite cause underground, and so you have all of these secret toasts and secret songs and um, secret patterns in glassware and embroidery that women are doing, and all over the place because um, you know you didn't want to end up being hanged. 
<laughs> Funny that. All right, so so we're, we'll come back to uh, boys and military and stuff, but I wanted to switch gears for a second and uh, and start by asking Sarah, but everyone can weigh in on. Uh, now that we've seen the whole season, and in fact the whole series, and I was thinking it would be interesting to look back at the whole new look mashup in Paris on Claire and how that fits in costume-wise. So I'm wondering what you're thinking looking back to the French episodes and especially the tweaks on Claire. It was such a long time ago. <laughs> it's like it was eternity ago. Um, I, you know, looking back at it, and I remember as we were, as all of these images were coming out ahead of the show and then the show was, you know, actually airing and people were kind of, um, you know, debating the, the pros and cons of this new look um, quasi 18th century uh, outfit that Claire was wearing, whether or not that would have been historically accurate for someone who, if even if somebody from 1945 could go back in time 200 years, would she have been able to know that she could have made, you know, the, the, the new look you know, thing work when that was not actually introduced until 1947. So, like, there's all these layers of, like, really nitpicky crap there that I've kind of wanted to distance myself from and just say that I liked the way it looked. I thought it was really clever. I really did. Um, and, uh, and I'm, you know, whatever. We're talking about a fantasy show. If she's... <laughs> She's from 1945, but she travels back to 1745. But she's got a dress that looks like came from 1947. You know what? <laughs> just it, it, it just seems like at this point that um, let's just look at it as an overall. Did it work? Yes, absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, yes. Okay, uh, Brenna, any thoughts on that one? Um, I just I have to say I I agree. Um, it's like okay, um, even as okay, women's wear is not really. My thing, I, I still have to frequently look up what the difference between an anglaise and a francaise is. Um, I know it's something to do with the back, but I get them mixed up all the time. Um, but, you know, that complete and total, I don't know what I'm talking about aside. <laughs> um, all right. Knowing the general aesthetic, you know, Claire's very plain evening gowns are kind of, you know, they're, they're startling in their um, starkness. But I, I think I agree with uh, with Sarah. It's like okay, if she's a night if she's from the 1940s and she has the particular aesthetic in and of herself, um, and she's seen these portraits in the National Portrait Gallery where people are wearing this, she might just you know say here, make me this, and the you know the mantua maker is like okay, crazy lady, fine, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's the one thing I always wish. That I'm like okay, as long as. I was just going to say, I, I always thought that it would be interesting to see, like, the, the person making her clothes being all, like, WTF lady? Like, this is, okay, they do things really weird in England. I'm just going to do whatever you say. You'll give me the money. We'll be good. <laughs> like, that would have been fun to explore. Yeah, definitely. A few a few scenes with the dressmaker. Um, I, I mostly agree with yeah. you guys. In some ways, uh, looking back, I kind of feel like the whole new look mashup was there to sort of allow the costume design team to do something fun, or not allow them, but that, like, I don't know that it was necessary, but it doesn't offend me. Um, and I definitely think there were some really beautiful things that came out of it, especially the bar suit with the, the whitey silver jacket over the, um, the black skirt. 
Um, the red dress still does stick out in my mind as a sore thumb, and mostly just things like the wonky hem and and the weird, the cut open front and all of that. And I know that that was a you know a tough a tough thing for the costume designer to work out and make make happen. So I mean, but overall, it, you know, it doesn't bug me. And I think the big thing is, of course, it was supposed to show the really strong contrast between their life in Paris and their life in Scotland, which, whoo, you know, especially now being in the, you know, all the military scenes, you know, the, I agree with Sarah, it does feel like it was lifetimes ago that we were seeing all that shiny stuff. Yeah. All right, so I thought now uh, maybe uh, take it back to Brenna and wondered if you wanted to talk at all about the different costumes worn by the soldiers, both generals and commoners, you know, Jamie, Dougal, etc., do you feel like they hit the right marks in terms of sort of diversity amongst the different um, uh, male characters, but also at the same time hitting the sort of key styles and garments? Like, did they did they do well in that? Did they put anyone in anything crazy? Did they miss anything that really should have been there? Well, um, I, I suppose the only thing that like, struck me is um, um, the tartans do seem to be just a little bit um, subdued. Uh, there and I think there should have been more um, of the the brighter colors like yellows and reds and and blues, but um, that's I, I know that's just something that um, you know Terry Dresbach feels that it, they would have been um, less bright and um, I feel they would have been more bright. Um, we can both we can both be right and we can both be wrong. Um, but that was the only thing that really struck me. I really liked the um, kind of array of fabrics that they were using. It's like, you know, some people are wearing things that are made out of tweed or just plain cloth. Others are wearing um, actual tartan. And I've long felt that that might actually be a far more accurate portrayal of Highland dress. Um, we have this image of tartan, 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 but that's a very complex fabric to weave and I'm, I'm not saying that it's impossible you know I, I knit lace without even thinking about it but I didn't when I started um, and so just because it's complicated doesn't mean that it's impossible it just means that it will cost people more and the Highlands were not um, well known for being wealthy so this ha this mixture of the tartans with the simpler fabrics I felt was um, was very good though um, I I don't remember what uh, Sarah said about the clan tartans, but I, I'm just going to kind of reiterate that there there wouldn't have been clan tartans at this point. So it's like I I can't tell without getting like nose to nose with um, the suit that Bonnie Prince the biscuit tin suit um, if it's Royal Stewart, but if it's not Royal Stewart, that is almost more accurate because um, I've been exchanging um, contact with one of the foremost um, Jacobite tartan experts in Scotland and he says pretty much when um, you know the Scottish tartan register started trying to collect them in the 19th century after Waverley and Rob Roy and all of those things had been published uh, you know they're writing up to um, the Lairds up in the Highlands and the Highlands had no idea what they're talking about where and it comes to clan tartan so they're just sending them a swatch of whatever kit they just recently had made so it's like um, Clan Tartan is a fairly recent development. That's <laughs> so it, fascinating. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I uh, one more on that point was that I was you know because of that little 
chastisement I got <laughs> about calling um, Bonnie Prince Charlie's biscuit tin suit, his plaid, uh, a Stuart plaid, and somebody said, oh my god, it's so not a Stuart plaid, it's obviously a blah 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 plaid, and I was like, okay, but then I went and I looked, and I tried to compare, you know, the, the portrait by um, uh, the one I just talked about, um, Ma uh, Mosman's portrait, with the costume that was made for the show, and they did a fairly good job of trying to match the number of, you know, checks going one direction in this color and everything. And, uh, and so it makes, and then, and of course, Terry, Terry Dressbach piped in and said that they actually made those tartans, they had those tartans custom made. So it makes sense to me that, you know, they're, they're copying, she was clearly referencing a portrait, she wasn't necessarily trying to stick to this, you know, codification of what Stuart Plaid was, uh, according to, you know, some guy who wrote it down in, like, the mid-19th century. <laughs> so in that regard, I give total props to to the team, the co costume team on Outlander, because they did it. You know, that's that's a weird, it's a weird, mushy area in history, mm -hmm. and especially clothing history. Yeah, and it is a beautiful recreation of that piece. It's like, okay, we can sit here and talk about, well, okay, you know, you never know if they actually owned clothing that they are portrayed in. But it is, um, you know, one of the visual records we have if we if the garments have not survived. And they did a beautiful job of recreating the suit that he's wearing in the Mosman portrait. Mm -hmm. So that was just, I was so happy. <laughs> um, to me, it looks like a McQueen curtain. Um, okay. I think that they said something like that, exactly. I think that was exactly what they said. It was a McQueen tartan. <laughs> but um, the fact that it's not a Royal Stewart is almost... It, it, that also makes me happy because, as I said, these things weren't codified yet. And I don't know why everyone gets their knickers in a bunch about the idea that, oh, you know, if, if they weren't wearing clan tartans back in 900 AD when... Scotland emerged as Alba rather than Pictland and Galeland, um, then it's not real. It's like, okay, it's been around as long as the United States Constitution. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> True. Okay, um, so my next question is for Sarah, and this is a, a very serious question, so I hope that everybody is sort of ready to get into some, you know, s some kind of, you know, difficult, complex ideas here. Okay. And just wondering how you felt about the uh, shagging or lack thereof in this in the finale and in the the season overall. Okay, so <laughs> I have thoughts about this <laughs> as I have gone through many of our posts <laughs> this this season. A um, lot less, and also our podcasts. Podcasts, yes, there have been a lot less shagging scenes overall in season two compared to season one. Now, you could make the argument that this is because Jamie and Claire's relationship has matured, and they are no longer just all about fucking like rabbits constantly. However, my personal preference as a viewer is to see far more shagging interspersed with all of the battle and the other crap that goes on. So, just take that with a grain of salt, if Roger Moore. If you're listening to this right now. Um, that said, I was glad that they got one last shag in. <laughs> I was literally like, yes! <laughs> High five, Jamie. Rock on. Um, that, you know, it wasn't much. It was incredibly, it was basically a quickie, but it was a lovely gesture, I thought. <laughs> There's nothing like a deadline. I know, right? <laughs> Here's a little something for you to remember me by. <laughs> oh, 
I mean, I, I'm with you. I was glad they put that in, but I would, that did not make up for the, the dry, the incredibly chafing dry spell we have experienced this season, especially as Sarah has pointed out before. They set us up in season one to expect all of this, like, female gaze shagging scenes that, like, actually got, like, proper dynamics between men and women and... and Oh Jesus! They better they better bring it back in in yeah. season three. I'm gonna be very grumpy. Bring back the female gaze, man. I'm just saying <laughs> we need to see more. Okay, well they haven't seen each other in 20 years at this point, so oh, yes. you know there is gonna be so much makeup sex now. Bob, I hope so. Please, fingers crossed for season three. Shagging up the wazoo <laughs> <laughs> with a few gray hairs mixed in there. Yes. Oh God, speaking of gray hairs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, can I just make a statement? Yes. Too far forward because I want to look like Claire when I'm 47 or 50 or whatever the hell she is. Because my God, I mean, obviously we know that it's like a 30-year-old actress who's been quote-unquote aged up by blowing out her hair and and putting a couple of white streaks in it. But come on, you know, that'd be really cool. That, my friend, is fiction. That right there. Everything else is believable, but that. Yeah, exactly. That's where that's where they broke all of our our illusions that we were actually watching a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> I thought Claire looked great. There were uh, specific um, little bits I loved, like in the 1960s scenes. There were specific little bits I loved, like her leather gloves. Completely reminded me of the driving gloves my mother used to wear in the 80s. And then when she went full scarf. Totally, my mother-in-law, who is uh, was British of a of a certain generation, um, but I thought that she looked great, and uh, I also had to weigh in quickly on the casting of Brianna, who hello dead ringer for Anna Packin, except yeah. red hair. But yes. I object to the fact that she is supposed to be six foot tall, and she was shorter than her mother, and that annoyed me. <laughs> there you go, man. You know. This, this whole season has just sucked now. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. I thought Roger was very cute. And, of course, you know, one of the things I like about the books are the, the flash-forward scenes, the, you know, the later scenes. And uh, I thought, you know, I enjoyed watching that just from a plot standpoint. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I really, it's like, I, when he came out in that mustard-colored suit, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Proper 1960s menwear. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So I, Claire's hair was not blown out nearly enough for the 1960s. I have seen pictures. I, my mother. My mother. <laughs> so much more Aquanet. Yeah, my mother's uh, freshman year in high school photos, basically. Yeah, it was it was the giant bubble thing, you know, with all the flipped up at the ends. But that was a couple of years before 1968, so I don't know, maybe. She yeah. was into she was into ironing her hair in 1968, so <laughs> it's a little bit more, I think, what, what they were going through. my mom. <laughs> and actually, it's funny now that I think about it, Brianna is actually, would be the same age as my mother, and so that, you know, born in like 1947, and so that tracks actually fashion-wise with what I've seen of my mother's, you know, fashion in like the late 60s and how she progressed from the bubble hairdo to the ironed, you know, long straight hair and... And, uh, and I thought they did a really great job, actually, overall with the 1960s portions, just getting, like, the, the part where I guess they're, in, I don't know, where do they go? They went to some university or something, and, uh, mm -hmm. and it's all of that mid-century modern 
architecture that are, you know, just perfect for the era. And you can kind of look at it and think, wow, that would have been like all new and fancy back then. And we look at it now and we're just like, oh God, why the hell did they even bother? But it was kind of cool seeing it in that, in that, you know, perspective. Yeah. yeah, and I really liked the, um, you know, it's like, and it's like, oh, it's jealous, yes, <laughs> being her crazy self, and um, it's like, and I, I did like the tapping in um, to, there was in the, the late 60s and um, early 70s, the, um, the younger generation was starting, um, they were picking up the, the independence referendum stuff again, the Scottish National Party and all of that, um, and there would be a vote in the uh, in the 70s, but it was like, yeah, it was all just like, yep, this is 1968 Scotland. <laughs> yeah, definitely, and, and I mean, again, straight out of the books, but it's it was fun to have her overlap, you know, with that character and to see Galus as Gillian, although it's interesting because this is just off-topic because it's kind of, you know, it goes back to the book and the sense. I would be interested to know more about Jillian, a.k.a. Galus, because obviously woman is loaded. If you did that house, and did you see the two? There was like a jaguar and something else parked in the driveway when Claire pulls up to visit the, the husband. So, like, I don't know. I just, not that, that one can't be rich and political, but, man, she was committed. I, I had the feeling that it was... It was his money, but um, then again, she could have been a trust fund baby. Who knows? Possibly. Yeah. And I did kind of like, I'm like, you're going to leave Jaguar for, well, for, <laughs> for my secret boyfriend, Dougal McKenzie, who she doesn't yet know she's going to be shagging, but maybe in her witchiness, she knew there was going to be this hot, bald guy waiting for her in the 18th century. Oh, poor Dougal. I'm so sorry. Are you wearing black, Kendra? I am. All oh. of my mirrors are draped in black. <laughs> poor, poor dude. Sending us little black rimmed cards. <laughs> yes, yes. R.I.P. My boyfriend. Yeah. Rest in peace, rest in peace, Kendra's boyfriend. I'm, but it was funny when that not funny actually. It was gruesome as fuck. But when when that scene was going on, I actually exclaimed out loud. I'm like, whoa. I, what did I say? It was like you know hardcore Claire or something like that because Claire is all like let's fucking drive this dagger into this guy's chest and I'm like that is yikes. <laughs> Claire and Dougal have baggage mm -hmm. but yeah no that that was it was one thing when, when she thwacked him over the head with the crate or whatever that made sense but yeah when she was actually like leaning on Jamie being like we're doing this man I was like whoa. I know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So my next question um, is for both of you, and maybe uh, let's start with Brenna. I'm wondering what was your, did, do you have an individual uh, costume that was your favorite um, from the whole season? Well, I think I've probably already outed myself, but it's definitely the biscuit tin suit. <laughs> I, I'm so in love with that. Yes. <laughs> I want it on a mannequin in my room so I can see it first thing when I wake up, and it'll be a good day because... That's what I first see when I wake up. <laughs> and Sarah, do you have a favorite costume that you've uh, seen over the season? Yeah, okay, so it's so hard because all of the shiny costumes were like a thousand years ago. So I'm trying desperately right now to like dredge up memories of of the shiny. Um, I would have to say, I you know, 
here's what it is. I really, really like the Comte de Saint-Germain's outfits. And I'm really sad that he didn't stick around for very long because holy cow, that guy is hot. And uh, yeah, his all of his outfits were, were really, really sexy. Excellent. Uh, for me, I think the, the standout still is the bar suit just because it's so that classic. I mean, it's Duchess Satin and it's so beautifully tailored and beautifully plain. Although, I also, the other one that really sticks with me is the the party dress that, um, oh God, how I'm blanking on her name, the, 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 the froofy friend in Paris. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the uh, Marquise de, uh, de la Tour. Um, is that whatever. Yeah. Whatever, the froofy <laughs> friend, the froofy Parisian friend, anyway, the outfit that she wears to Versailles, except that that's tempered by the fact that the back is wrong, quote-unquote, from historical accuracy, so I can't like it as much as the bar suit. Okay, I actually have an actual actual comment here, a costume that I actually liked and I'd forgotten until I just looked at it on the website, um, Claire's Van Dyke outfit. I ended up being really very actually charmed with the way that that, that little black dress with the white sleeves um, was put together. And, and as you know, I posted this whole article on it on the website about the ref what it was referencing because we did get a lot of commentary initially like, what the hell, you know, like, this isn't an 18th century dress, this came out of nowhere, and I was like, actually, guys, yeah. um, there is actually precedence for it, but of course we still have that argument as to whether or not it was everyday wear or something that would be worn for a fancy dress or a special occasion or whatever, so Claire running around the house just kind of casually dressed in it, I'm a little iffy on, but it was definitely done. We know that much because there are a bajillion portraits and you can, of course, go to the, our website and look it up. Yeah. Uh, agreed in the sense that it was well executed. I don't think it was worn for the right occasion, but that's fine. And come on, Sarah, you should know the correct phrase is well actually. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well actually, it's well actually. <laughs> okay. Um, anything else anyone wants to talk about about the past two episodes or the season in general? And then I want to get in just a little bit uh, to some spoilery things looking forward to season three. But before we do... Nope. I'm good. You're good? Brenna, you good? Um, I have to say is that, you know, I'm like, okay, the, the menswear, again, is like really amazing and um, that like really came home to me because um, this past week um, I was finally able to head down to Los Angeles and see uh, Raining Men Ooh, yeah. and um, I wanted to like live in those galleries forever and ever and ever. <laughs> Clarify what Raining Men is for those who don't know. Oh, um, LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art has um, an exhibition on at the moment of um, menswear from 1715 to 2015 and um, They've actually instead of doing things like chronologically, they um, kind of mix all of the um, eras together, so you can see how um, you know modern fashion is um, drawing from um, historic fashion or um, the evolution of the suit and so on and so forth. Um, there are two beautiful, beautiful uniforms. One of which um, I believe is a dragoon's um, uniform from the 18th century, and then a 19th century navy uniform. Um, but they also have, you know, court suits from France from 1715, 1720. They've, um, the, um, they've got the clothing that the French revolutionaries wore. So it's a beautiful perspective of menswear. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, good. 
All right, so um, the last thing that I thought would be fun to talk about is a little bit spoilery. So for listeners, if you uh, haven't read the third book in the series, Voyager, and you don't want to know what's, hap- what's uh, going to happen, then, then quick, hit the mute button, because uh, the next book is going to get into post-Culloden, um, and then eventually they're going to end up in Jamaica. Uh, and bo- both of those being in the 18th century and then ni- more in 1968 Scotland. And I thought it would be fun to talk about what you're interested in seeing. Um, I- I'm guessing both of you might have, have thoughts on on either of those locations. So maybe, Brenna, what are you interested in seeing that sort of post-Culloden, post-Rising in terms of 18th century costume? Where's that going to go, historically at least, and what would you like to see on screen? Well, I'm... Um... The, the emigration to Jamaica is something that several Jacobites actually ended up doing, um, you know, save their necks. Um, selfish people that they were. <laughs> but it's like when they get out to the colonies, um, there is this, this tendency in, um, among British colonials to kind of relax a bit. They had to adapt the, the, the textiles that they used because, you know, the, the weather in Jamaica is not the weather in the Highlands. So that will be really interesting to see how that happens. Right. Sarah, thoughts? Well, along along the same lines as Brenna's um, thoughts, <clears throat> so a lot of the research I've done personally on costume history has focused on kind of the Caribbean influence on, um, on English and French fashions in the 1780s and 1790s. So this is still, this is going to be probably 20 years or so before that if they're tracking along with the, the aging of the characters in modern age versus 18th century. Anyways, uh, so it, what Brenna was saying about the textiles being a really interesting component of this and the fact that when you, uh, you, know, you take a bunch of Europeans who are used to wearing heavy wools and heavy satins and heavy, you know, a, a lot of clothes basically because it's cold in most parts of Europe, not all parts of Europe, but most parts of Europe, particularly the Scottish Highlands, um, you then transplant them into the into Jamaica or you know Saint Domingue or something like that. They automatically shed a ton of their clothes, <laughs> and you start to see this really interesting phenomenon of of bits and pieces of the Creole uh, fashions kind of creeping into um, European fashion in in the plantations and and so on. So I'm I'm interested to see if they actually pull that out and, uh, and play with that a little bit, because I think that'd be fun. Seeing a lot more cottons, that would be really cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you guys both now, and now I can't remember the exact year that Claire goes back. Uh, again, sorry, spoilers, but Claire mm-hmm. ends up going back to the 18th century end. But if we're far enough along in the 1760s, I would love to see a little bit of high hair. That would make me happy. Uh, high hair that's appropriate to the era, because I still remember in season one there were weird extras in one of the early crowd scenes at uh, whatever the big Mackenzie Castle was, that name I've forgotten anyway, but anachronistically high hair, but I don't know if it'll happen, but that could be exciting for me because, you know, the higher the hair, the closer to God. And um, the other thing that's like, okay, I'm thinking post-Culloden, and um, there is, you know, there's a lot of debate about how well enforced the, um, the ban on tartan was. We know that, it, you know, Parliament enacted the law, but um, there's a lot to suggest that 
how it was enforced was kind of arbitrary. If you had a blackjack, Randall, they would be way harsher than someone who was just like, I don't care, I'm just here until they let me go home. See how the fabrics um, change in the Highlands now that um, Tartan is technically outlawed. <laughs> Definitely. I can't remember now if the book gets into the Highlands. I know they're in Edinburgh for some time, mm -hmm. um, and so that will be interesting to see. Yeah. Oh, I would love it if they filmed it. What, what happens because Yes, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I've got. Uh, any other thoughts? Anybody wants to make predictions? Uh, I know Sarah is excited to put her feet up. <laughs> <laughs> I want more shagging. I'll tune in every week if there's shagging. Just, you know, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Less chunky knitwear, and uh, especially the sort of thing that Fergus was wearing, as he's running off with the the legal document, I'm like, okay, did that that looked like it was it came out of um, the the Hunger Games movies. I don't even know what that was. <laughs> Possibly, maybe maybe there was some time loop and Galus brought it back with her. <laughs> All right. Well, we will have a blog post up recapping the finale at frockflix.com. So make sure you check that out. Um, and we'll also have links to the various things we chatted about in this uh, podcast. Um, and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Frockflix, where we will post all the Outlander news that we come across. Well, especially the Outlander costumey news. Um, and I'm not sure what's going to be next in terms of a podcast, but I'm sure it will be fabulous. So keep your eyes peeled. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. And uh, leave us a review, because we always love to hear uh, from you what you think of the podcast. So until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.